All right, so let's get started. Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we have on the line uh, the eminent Thomas J. Ord, uh, author of The Uncontrolling Love of God. Would you like to say Good to be to with audience? you, Chris. I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah. It's good to be hanging out with you and having a chat. Oh, it's great. We've been meaning to do this for a while, and uh, the holidays just got in the way, and then just life gets real fast, real quickly. But I'm glad I relate I, to that. Yeah, I'm glad I finally got you on. And what really piqued my interest was this latest blog post of yours about creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing. But we'll kind of get into that a little bit later and how that relates to your book and your doctrine of uh, essential kenosis is what you call it. But can you just tell Sounds us, great. Can you just tell us just a little bit about yourself, your theological background, and then this latest book that you wrote, The Uncontrolling Love of God, which we also have reviews for on God is Open. Sure. I was uh, fortunate to be uh, raised in a family who my both of my parents were Christians. I grew up in the church, um, enjoyed the uh, the church community. I attended a church that I think is probably a little better than the average church. I know some people have bad experiences with church, but most of my experiences were positive. I went through a time in my life in college in which I was a very ad, uh, very much an evangelist. I did a lot of door-to-door -door evangelism. Uh, I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. And um, during that time, part of my sort of reason for being was to convince people to become followers of Jesus Christ so they could go to heaven. And uh, I uh, took a class in philosophy of religion, and for the first time, encountered some really smart people who had uh, other ideas about God. Some of them were agnostic, some of them were atheists, some of them were just folks from other religious traditions. And uh, the reasons that I had for believing in God no longer made sense. They didn't, you know, they didn't pass muster uh, in front of these other ideas and voices and criticisms. And so for a short period of my life, I was an atheist. In fact, I never forget pulling up uh, to pick up my fiance, who's my wife, and her getting into the car and me turning to her and saying, I can't believe in God anymore. An atheist for all that long because I was a person who wanted to continue to think deeply and try to figure out life and and I realized that I couldn't make much sense of life. Life didn't seem to have much meaning or purpose if there was no God. And I slowly began to piece together reasons why it seems more plausible to me than not that God exists. I don't know with certainty that God exists, but I'm at a place where I think there are evidence. There's evidence, there's arguments, there's reasons, there's experience for me to think it's more plausible than not that there is a God. And one of the factors was the issues of love. I couldn't make sense out of this deep intuition I felt that I ought to be a loving person and that somehow love was the fundamental order of the universe if there was no God. And so God began to play an important kind of conceptual role in my making sense of life. And uh, that brought me, of course, to all kinds of interesting questions like why would a powerful and loving God not prevent the genuine evil in the world? 
And that uh, big question, the problem of evil or theodicy, is really one of the two driving forces in this uh, most recent book, Love of God. So one thing I really like about the book is it uh, not only highlights your model that you propose, but it highlights alternative models to kind of give a broad spectrum of what's out there, what's been proposed before, and really showing the, the spectrum of belief that's uh, around. And then advocating your own idea of essential kenosis. Am I saying that right? I think I say that right. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. Would, would you like to elaborate on that concept just a little bit? Yeah, well, that the, you're referring uh, in terms of these other models uh, in uh, to kind of the the um, the hinge chapter in the book, you might say. It's right in the middle, chapter four, in which I present seven models uh, of thinking about God, or seven models of providence, as I put it. And I I think that's one of the most helpful parts of the book. In fact, it often gets the most comments, other than my sort of main idea of essential kenosis, because it does does allow people to kind of find themselves on the spectrum and see the advantages and disadvantages of each. Basically, on the far left is, or we'll call it right in this instance, is a hardcore theological determinism, some forms of Calvinism. And uh, then we go to kind of Arminianism, voluntary free will theism, my essential kenosis. And then you get on views on the other side of me that are like... Uh, Maybe Paul Tillich's view, which is God is kind of the glue of the universe, but not interactive, not engaging, or the deistic view that God started things off, but is now uninvolved. It's kind of the, maybe not even a model, but one that uh, uh, some people want to appeal to, and that's the God of utter mystery. And my essential kenosis differs, uh, I, I sort of focus on the middle uh, part of the uh, of the models, the seven models, because, you know, it's oftentimes most fun to talk about how your model is a little bit different from those that are close to it. And um, my particular model um, is different from some of the other kenosis models that are out in the field of theology today. Kind of the typical or the standard kenosis model says that God voluntarily or self-limits is the, the more common language. And in this voluntary self-limitation, God gives them an agency and allows space for creatures to live and make choices if they're complex, etc. And, um, and it's out of love that God chooses to do this. And, you know, famous people like Jürgen Moltmann fits in this category, John Polkinghorne, a, a whole bunch of people, this voluntary uh, kenosis position. And what I've found to be one of the main problems with this position, as popular as it is, and as many upsides to it as I think there are, at the end of the day, it has to say that for some reason, this God who is voluntarily self-limited does not become unself-limited from time to time to prevent genuine evil. And so, uh, you know, if, if you're someone who's, I don't know, let's take a really horrific example, uh, someone who's being raped, uh, you're thinking, okay, God could, according to self, uh, according to voluntary uh, uh, 
kenosis or self-limitation, God could step in and stop what's happening to me. God could intervene. For some reason, God's deciding to allow this rapist, his or her free will, to do this horrible thing to me. And so it becomes very difficult to think that God is consistently loving if God doesn't sometimes step in to prevent things, if God's able to do so. And, you know, some some folks in this model think that God rarely, if ever, does. Others have it in and intervening more often. My view says, by contrast, that God cannot genuine evil because God is... I'll sometimes call it involuntarily self-limited. That is, God's nature of love is self-giving and others empowering. And because God can't deny God's own nature, God must give this freedom and agency. And therefore, God can't, for example again, God can't withdraw the rapist's freedom or override it or fail to give it. Because God's nature of love always gives, always in others empowers. It's just part of what is. That's the essential part of the kenosis in my model. Yeah, so this model is pretty good in that it solves the age-old question. If God sees evil, and he's all good, and he can prevent evil, why doesn't he? Because there's a limiting factor, and that's his love in this model. Exactly. Yep. And this love is a particular kind of love. It's a self-giving others empowering love. And probably the most sort of theological nerdish point of the book is that this love is logically prior to God's power. So God could not choose not to love, uh, we might say. And that's a really important key step that even some of my many of my fellow open theists don't make. They still want to have God's choosing to love the choice to come before the nature of love and i put the nature of love prior to choice which means that god cannot choose not to love god must always choose to love so yeah that that's uh that's an interesting concept and you often find that people are pitting attributes against each other like uh you know god is omnipotent but he's omniscient so can he choose not to know something and they say well his omniscience means he can't not know something so that limits his power to choose not to know something so there, there's always a give and take in these attributes right and, uh, right and that's why i think um even though there's not like a succession in sort of like a domino order of divine attributes, like you're lined up like dominoes, there is a logical priority. If you start with one attribute and then try to interpret the others in light of it, then that's going to shape the kind of the picture or the model of God you have. And I think there are good biblical reasons and, you know, intuitive reasons or experiential reasons for saying that we ought to start with love and make sense of these other attributes, and I think it helps us make sense of a whole lot of issues, the problem of evil being one of the key ones. Yeah, and this prioritizing, we don't escape that with other models. It's not like Calvinism no. escapes this problem where where there's com conflictions between their different attributes that they have to prioritize. This model is just a different way of doing it that they might not prefer, but they can't object on the grounds of 
their attributes are unlimited, whereas yours are limited. That's not a valid objection. Exactly right. Yeah, great point. Sometimes I'll have people that come up to me and say, well, you know, you're prioritizing love, but I think all the attributes ought to have equal weight. And then I say to them, okay, well, tell me what that ends up looking like. And they'll start describing what God does and can do and know, et cetera. And it's very clear by the way they describe what God's up to that they have a, a, an implicit priority there, even if they want to make them all even. And so I'm just being right out front with it and saying, love comes first. We ought to understand the other attributes in light of love. All right. So excellent. Uh, your latest blog post is actually on creation ex nihilo. And for those who don't understand what that is, that's uh, God creating out of nothing. And often this idea in Christian circles under the layman is God created all the material world from nothing. But among scholarship, um, I got quotes from Thomas Aquinas and from, uh, let's, let's see who this guy is. This is uh, my latest book by Doezel. Am I saying that right? Is that the, you know, this guy? How do you spell the last name? Doelzel, um, D-O-L-E-Z-A-L. He wrote the book, God Without Part. I know that name. No, yeah, no. I don't know that name. He's interesting. He's got some good podcasts on immutability, and he, he's a Calvinist uh, through and huh. through. He's a Reformed metaphysicist. He, yeah, he, he specializes in metaphysics, and he understands uh, divine simplicity. He understands... Um, the, the, the traditional concepts of creation ex nihilo flow from this idea of divine simplicity, that God is without parts, and God is prior to anything. If God has any parts, that means he could be simplified, and therefore he's not prior, and because God is prior to all things, he has to have this absolute unity. There can be no relations to other things within this unity. All his attributes are of the same idea let's let's read what he writes here he says this doctrine of divine simplicity teaches that god is identical with his existence and his essence and that each of his attributes is ontologically identical with his exist er, his existence and with every other one of his attributes so this guy argues that divine simplicity unity and comprehensibility means it's all one. We can't speak of it intelligibly. We can't put words to this idea of God. And from this God, everything else must flow because everything else is complex rather than this absolute simplicity. And that's the reason why he claims that God has all these attributes of immutability and incomprehensibility and simplicity and unity. So if, would you like to make some brief comments on that and then describe your own view, how that relates? Yeah, it sounds to me like he's describing a very traditional notion uh, that comes from the Thomistic uh, analytic tradition that wants to understand God in very unitive or simplistic or simplicity kinds of terms. And um, uh, at least from what you read right there, it doesn't sound like he's doing anything particularly new. Um, I also believe in divine simplicity, but I have a very different metaphysic that uh, ties to divine simplicity. I think God is one without parts. But when I talk about God being one, I mean that God's essence is one and that God's experience is one but moment by moment. 
So just as you and I go through life experiencing moment-by-moment existence, and yet we have unity as persons, assuming we have a nature, that's a debate within anthropology, but let's assume for the moment we have a human nature, but we experience time moment-by-moment, we have some kind of simplicity in us for what it means to be human, but we also change moment-by-moment in relation to others. And what many of the classical theists worried about is that they wanted to believe God was perfect. And they thought to themselves, look, if God is perfect, that means that any change from perfection could only be down to imperfection. Therefore, God can't change in any way whatsoever. With that is that what we know about a living being, what we know about love, what we know about relationship always involves this kind of giving and receiving, this kind of moment-by-moment change. You just It's hard to imagine a real love relationship that is absolutely unchanging. And so at the end of the day, I argue, and I'm not the only one, that this notion of hard and fast immutability in all respects, simplicity in all respects, which also corresponds with the idea that God is timeless in all respects, ends up undermining not only the way we think about what it means to be a living Lord of history, but also who God is in terms of God's love. And it really, really does not fit well with the biblical ideas of God, at least most of them, uh, in terms of a God who's in relationship and a giving and receiving covenant kind of God uh, as described in most of Scripture. Absolutely. And traditional uh, classical simplicity, God cannot have relations. So God can't talk to Moses and interact with Moses and have a genuine give-and-take relationship. They have to impose this idea on the Bible where all of history is one uh, immutable divine essence act. And when we read Augustine, he writes about God speaking in the Bible, and he says God can't speak. Uh, Words are in sequence. We can't have any of that. Instead, God divinely programmed from all eternity a parrot to go out there and say these words that we could hear, but God didn't actually say them because God talking, God interacting, that would undo all of this metaphysics in which God is perfectly simple. We can't even talk about God. We can't even think about God. Uh, This makes any idea of a trinity, a relationship in the trinity, it, uh, it puts that idea to shame saying that God can't have relations, even within the Trinity. And I I haven't heard very good explanations of how the Trinity can exist and also divine simplicity. They're inherently contradictory ideas. Yeah, I mean, I'm in agreement with everything you said there. I mean, um, I'm an open and relational theologian, which means I think about God's relation to time and the future in a particular way. But even if people who are, are not open theists like I am Uh, people who are Trinitarian, especially social Trinitarian, they're often really uh, also uh, objecting strongly to the kind of view that you read a little while ago about this, uh, I'll call it classical uh, simplicity and uh, immutability because of what it says for the Trinity. And I also think that it's really hard to make sense of the incarnation in general, and especially the incarnation of Jesus in particular, if you have that hard and fast uh, immutability, simplicity view, uh, it's just so hard to make sense of much of the Christian scripture and what at least most Christians have wanted to say 
about God. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so actually, to, I'm sorry. A other part of your question was how my alternative doctrine to creation fits in there. Should I jump in to that? Yeah, you call this the creatio ex uh, creation simpla naturae. <laughs> yeah, a little Latin. Yeah, the easier way to say it is God always lovingly creates out of that which God previously created, and this creating is everlasting. So um, I recognize probably, oh man, almost 20 years ago, the Bible does not explicitly support this idea that God creates out of absolutely nothing. It wasn't until the third century that Christians started to toy with this idea, and eventually it became very uh, commonly believed, and it's very common today. But it's not explicitly stated in Scripture. Now, at the time when I started realizing that, I thought, well, you know, there's other things that I believe that aren't explicitly stated in Scripture. And so just because it's not explicitly there doesn't necessarily mean I should throw out the idea. And so it didn't really bother me much. But then I began to think about the implications of God's power as the capacity to bring something out of nothing. If God's got that kind of unilaterally determinative power, if God can something to be, that means that God must have the kind of power to prevent the genuine evils of the world. Whether or not that means uh, creating something out of nothing instantaneously now to block something, or just having the general power to be able to uh, control things. Uh, one of uh, the most influential present-day uh, philosophers of religion, a guy named Alvin Plantinga, in one of his recent, he's someone who believes in creation out of nothing. And to emphasize it, he says, God has the ability to instantaneously create a full-grown horse in Times Square. Just boom, there's a horse. Well, if God's got that kind of capacity, and he's thinking that because he believes in creation out of nothing, again, an idea not explicitly in the Bible, the whole problem of evil issues is even more difficult to understand. I mean, someone walks into McDonald's with a gun and starts shooting people. The God who has the capacity to create instantaneously something out of nothing could create metal and stop every bullet. Is, uh, can create something out of nothing instantaneously. Could put a, a, a big rope between that rapist that I mentioned earlier and his victim or her victim. I mean, when you start thinking about all the things a God who could create from nothing should do in the name of love to prevent genuine evil, I mean, your mind just goes bananas. Now, someone might say, well, look, if God did that all the time, then that would really screw up the laws of nature and the conservation of energy and all that sort of stuff. And planning it says, no, no, God, God can still keep all of those things going, even though God would create out of nothing this horse in Times Square. Where, etc. And I actually think he's right logically on that point. But what he gives up is any, I think, genuine solution to the problem of evil. So I started thinking about what we might come up with as an alternative. And I'm not the first one to do this, but um, I started thinking that maybe there's some ways to get over to some of the common objections to alternatives to creation out of nothing. 
So like one common objection is this. Hey, if God didn't create the universe out of nothing, then did God sort of stumble upon some stuff, some matter laying around somewhere that God didn't first create? And God said, hey, what's this stuff doing here? Well, that would su suggest that there is something that exists that God didn't create. And I'm among many Christians who want to say, no, God created everything. The possibility of God always creating in each moment out of what God had created the previous moment and God creating that out of the previous, et cetera, et cetera. And there's no absolute beginning. No single thing or entity or creature or world or universe would be everlasting. Each one would have a particular time frame, but they would always be created in relation to what had come before. I think this is a way to get beyond many of the problems that other people have with alternatives to creation out of nothing and yet also be able to solve that problem of evil that I think is so important for those of us who want to say God is consistently loving. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was talking to my brother today, and I, I was talking about this uh, creation of nothing. And so you got the two possibilities in existence. Either everything spawned at a single moment in time, or everything was eternally existing. And the ancient Jews, of course, they believed God was from everlasting to everlasting. They viewed time as endless duration. They didn't view it as a single point event where time came into existence. And I said to him, I'm like, you know what, when you read people like uh, Cicero uh, on, on, uh, on the gods, you know, he has that famous book. Basically, every other culture throughout history uh, believed in this uh, infinite amount of duration. There's only two real schools of thought that uh, believe that time spawned into existence. It, that time spawned into existence. There's the Platonists, and then there's the Christian Platonists of the third century. Other than that, everyone else believes in eternal existence of God through duration and time not being a created thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I say to a lot of people who, you know, are kind of worried about this idea. They'll say, well, you know, I don't know if I can believe in an everlasting sequence of uh, creation. I mean, that's like, that's mind boggling. That's, that doesn't make sense to me. And I say, well, don't you believe that if you believe in God, don't you believe that God has no beginning? And all of them say yes. And I say, well, it's the same concept logically. All it is is applying it to a created order. There's, of course, is I think God maintains a unity throughout all of that time. God's essence is eternal. God's experience uh, has continuity throughout all eternity. Whereas creaturely existence has beginnings and ends. And so it's not quite the same as God in that way. So we can make a real difference between God and creation. But what's the same is the sequence is everlasting and so there's no logical problem even thomas aquinas admitted that there's no logical problem with an idea of an everlasting sequence of created moments um, start begin thinking differently about that yeah absolutely <clears throat> i just had a conversation on facebook about uh, genesis 1 uh, in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and uh, my point that I proffered was the scholarly opinion 
you know, the Michael Heisers of the world, uh, Christine Hayes, professor at uh, Yale University, their opinion is that that's mistranslated if you look at the clause structures. And really, that's an introduction to a story. You find the same thing in Genesis 2, where it kind of gives an overview. Like, this is the sequence when I started cleaning my room, and then it describes me cleaning my room. So really, if you're looking at how those clauses work, um, God pre-exists Genesis 1.1. Uh, the water void pre-exists Genesis 1-1, and uh, the angels, the divine realm pre-exists Genesis 1-1, and you have God having conversation with various angels throughout the text, uh, create man in our image. People take that as a trinity text, but the scholarly consensus is pretty much that that's the divine realm that's being discussed there. And then, uh, you know, behold, Man has become like one of us. That's usually taken as, uh, you know, a divine council, uh, divine, the divine realm type of conversation. So really the scholarly opinion is Genesis 1-1 is not describing creation ex nihilo, everything that exists. Rather, it's the beginning to the story of the creation of the material world. And I think you Yeah, that's right. Blog post. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean... Uh there's a few exceptions, but the vast majority of scholars uh, agree with what you said. And even it used to be in, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, say something like, well, most of the progressive or liberal scholars say this. But now even very conservative scholars are saying, look, there's no creation out of nothing, at least explicitly in the Bible. You know, you can come to the biblical text believing God created out of absolutely nothing and then read passages and say, well, that kind of hints at it. But that's a whole different story than saying it says so explicitly. And um, I think we ought to think creatively because of a bunch of other problems. I haven't even mentioned some of the science stuff here, but a bunch of other uh, issues. We ought to think creatively about what might make more sense to say that God's creating is not out of nothing but God is always creating. Yeah, absolutely. The funny thing is uh, I, I signed up for this free Dallas Theological Seminary course on Genesis 1, and Dallas Theological is considered fairly conservative. And, uh, uh, very. Yeah, even, <laughs> even their conservative course on Genesis says that. He says, I have no, no problem with this meaning what the scholarly consensus is, we got other texts that I point to for creation of the universe and stuff like that. But he, they admit that Genesis 1-1 doesn't mean what a lot of Christian laymen think that it means. Yeah, yeah. So, so really quick before we go in this podcast, you said there are some scientific reasons. Um, if you could just touch on those just a little bit uh, before we conclude, that would be great. Yeah, well, I mean, most of the scientists have been saying for quite a quite some time that um, the Big Bang uh, has lots of good evidence, but there's no, uh, nothing could be said about what happened prior to the Big Bang. So Big Bang doesn't mean creation out of nothing. It just means that the expansion of our particular universe had a beginning at some time. And there hasn't been any real reason to say one way or another if there was a before that beginning. But in the last oh, five or ten years, um, many of uh, the, the work being done in cosmology has begun to believe that in order to make sense of the expansion, there must be a great deal of what's called uh, dark matter or dark energy in the universe. And uh, this is 
pretty speculative. So, you know, I'm not putting all my cards on this, but um, the current assessment is that the amount of dark matter or dark energy in the universe far exceeds what could be possible from a singular bang at the beginning of the expansion of our universe, which means that there must be some kind of carryover from what happened prior to the Big Bang. Now, again, I'm not putting all my cards on this sort of uh, hypothesis here or this stuff, but it may be some of the first scientific speculation or a need to believe there is something that happened prior to the Big Bang. Perhaps our universe is a bang out of the previous universe that, you know, had gone into almost absolute chaos. And then, uh, you know, there's a new bang. In my view, God creates out of that chaos, and we have a new universe, uh, the, the one that we live in now. Yeah, absolutely. I think just the laws of thermodynamics, uh, that matter cannot be created or destroyed, that speaks towards endless duration rather than a point creation of the universe. Just, just what we know about physics. Right, and that was a very common view. They call it the steady state view. But when so much evidence came for the universe expanding, the calculations then began about how, well, if it's expanding, it, we have to think words to a singularity at the beginning. And of course, I'm all for that. But then the question, people started to set aside the question of, okay, what, what happened before the singularity? And I think there were even maybe some theological reasons why people didn't want to ask that question. But most scientists, even who believe very strongly in the Big Bang, and I'm someone who believes strongly in the Big Bang, say that there's no, uh, there, the Big Bang doesn't give us any definitive explanation for what happened or what may have existed just prior to the Big Bang. Yeah, absolutely. My guest today has been Thomas J. Ord, author of The Uncontrolling Love of God, which is available on Amazon.com. Uh, pick up a copy, read it. Uh, even if you don't agree with his conclusions, he does give a lot of useful information about what, what else is out there, what alternatives are, and just different philosophical ideas that you might not have considered about the problem of evil. I thank you so much for uh, spending your time today and going over this uh, interesting view that gives us an alternative to the Calvinist models of how the universe spawned from God's absolute simplicity, unity. And I like to point out, there's other models out there. That it's not a default. It's never yeah. been a default. And it's not what you believe. Excellent. Hey, I've enjoyed the conversation, Chris. All right. Thank you so much. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening.